This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, it's just after 11 o'clock. You're listening to 3RRR. If by some chance you're expecting to hear another show, that's because you haven't corrected your daylight savings time. Um, we have, I think, uh, got ourselves an extra hour, which was great, except someone didn't inform my four-year-old. Chris KP's in the studio. Good morning. Uh, am I standing in for a four-year-old? <laughs> I'm possibly underqualified. You sure. are. You're very underqualified, I think, for a four-year-old. But, you know, we'll, we'll take what we can get from you. That'll, yeah, that'll yes, be fine. Enough. And in the studio. Now, some of you will remember her from last week. This is uh, another Dr. Lauren. It's not the normal Dr. Lauren. It's another Dr. Lauren. We're going to get her to change her name by Deepol, but it hasn't happened yet. Lauren, <laughs> welcome back. You were here last week talking about knees. Now we've got you in here helping us out. Yeah, great to be back. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to start off with some news, folks, and we'll take you through until 12 o'clock with Edith. We've got a couple of great guests hanging out in the green room, which we'll get to shortly. But, uh, Chris KP, let's start off with you. What's been uh, happening? Uh, well, I, I found this story about a uh, about a little tiny fish. There's little things that are like a few centimetres long, weeny little things called fang blennies. Uh, and you may not have heard of the, a fang blenny. I know what a blenny is. Blennies are very cool. Well, so picture, yeah. picture a little fish with massive fangs. Uh, yep. That's essentially what it is. Um, they're actually venomous. So, and you can imagine little fish get attacked by big fish. This is, you know, classic zoology, not even 101. Um, big fish eat little fish. And of course, the, the little fish have a, a poisonous so they can defend themselves. Let me ask you this though. If you're a venomous fish protecting yourself from being eaten, what is the venom designed to do to the predator? Paralyze it. Nice call, anyone else? Par- uh, well, you know, just stun it. Stun it so they can eat it? Well, I don't think it's going to eat it because it's tiny. Tiny, but it's still, well, you know, they're <laughs> sucking them or something, I don't know. You know? <laughs> well, see, my I've been was, known to take on something was, larger yeah. than me. <laughs> You're not a fangly, though. Yeah. Um, one of my, so my thought was one of two things. Either it's going to cause it enough pain to make it go, ow, I'm not going into that thing mm. again, or mm. just, you know, knock it out cold. Well, it kind of doesn't do either. What I love about this is the scientists, there's a tiny fish, the scientists studying this had to find a way of getting the venom from these fish, mm-hmm. and they don't make very much. So essentially they had to sort of suspend some, you know, cotton wool ball, get the, the little fish angry enough so it would attack it, <laughs> you know, ideally repeatedly, and then sort of draw the venom out of it and yeah. build it up over time, and eventually they got enough. What they found is that when they, when they extracted this stuff and they injected it into mice, there was no pain. The mice didn't seem to jump. They weren't uncomfortable at all. What it did, though, and what it does, in fact, to large fish preying on these small fish in the ocean, is it actually just really dramatically drops their blood pressure. Right. So essentially, they're kind of, they're not paralysed, but they're, they can't swim real fast. They don't feel (laughs) very well. Fainting fish. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Fainting Um, fish. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Someone get the salts for that poor fish. But what, what this, and it works so well that in fact, other blennies that aren't fang blennies, that aren't, that aren't venomous, will in fact mimic the look and colour of these little guys because the bigger fish have learned that don't go near them it just makes you feel a little bit queasy <laughs> you're just not quite yourself yeah so we finally worked out that it's unusual that it doesn't cause pain and it doesn't completely paralyse you it just makes you feel NQR for a while and that's enough to scare other fish off and that's a great defence mechanism not an attack mechanism for them exactly yeah, precisely yeah. yeah it really is and I, I recommend it to people if you can make someone feel nauseous they'll leave you alone and, and I mean my knowledge of blennies doesn't go beyond my marine aquarium sure. into the ocean but they are great cleaners and scavengers ah. and so they do they do a great job so you need role. them in the yes. in the food chain to um well, in the food chain in the <laughs> ecosystem it's important because it, it reminds me of that um story we did just a couple of months ago about that there was another fish that was no it was a snail oh yes that was injecting yes. 
yes. in, uh, an insulin, either insulin or something that blocked insulin into the fish. So they basically went into hypoglycemic shock. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was this super fast acting, um, form of insulin that would overwhelm the fish's well, system. And they've essentially, you know, the, instantly turned into a diabetic who's just eaten three Mars bars and had no, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> yeah. well, and that, was, that was how they killed actually, them. Yeah. There's, there's actually, it's a cocktail of, um, of, of different things. One of them is related to snail venom. So they actually is, there's a bit of that in there as well. It's not quite the same, obviously, but a bit of that as well. But it's apparent, it's very unusual amongst, according to the paper anyway, um, marine poisons, marine mm. venoms, because you think about, well, think about, you know, um, stonefish. Yeah. yeah. Agonizing oh, pain. Yeah. Think about stingrays. Blue bottles. Yeah, blue bottles, yeah. Yep. So it's really odd. That you, that but there's no, no pain. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Oh, well, okay. that's they're, they're cute little things. They Maybe are. That's, yeah. 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 Big teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big sticker. Yes. Now, Lauren, what do you got for us? Yes, well, um, I have two things that might appear unrelated uh, at first glance, but I have a news article about heart tissue being grown on spinach leaves. Hello. So, yeah, <laughs> if that's not intriguing enough, um, I'll expand a bit more as it's actually got to do with the very hot topic of 3D organ printing to help with transplants um, for disease. So you guys probably are aware these buzzwords have been around for a while, and though we sort of have had some pretty significant advantages um, that have been made in the last 10 to 20 years, um, researchers still face a really fundamental challenge in making these organs um, a reality. So they're seeking to really scale up um, the human tissue regeneration from small lab samples to full-size tissues and organs, but they run into the problem of actually creating a sustainable vascular system. Mm. So this is important because the vascular, vascular system delivers blood and therefore oxygen and nutrients um, to the, that the tissue needs to grow and become an organ. And so current um, 3D printing techniques can't actually fabricate this intricate um, vasculature needed down to the capillary level. So some researchers in Massachusetts noticed that spinach leaves have a very intriguing vasculature. And so mm. they thought, all right, well, what if we um, decellularize these spinach leaves and use them as a scaffold to try and grow human tissue onto? Oh, wow, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. So what they did was they took all of the um, plant cells off of it um, mm -hmm. through a bleaching um, washing process, and then they actually sent through some... Um, blood, probably blood cell size um, tissue into the vasculature and then they were actually able to grow heart tissue onto decellularized spinach leaves. And so when you have these decellularized spinach leaves, what's left is cellulose, which is really interesting because it's um, very important that it's biocompatible. So when you stick something in your body, obviously you want it to be able to yeah. you know, interact naturally with your body. So they've got the cellulose, it's biocompatible, sustainable, and then it has economic um, and environmental benefits compared to synthetic materials. And so this, um, you know, obviously it's still very early stage, but it kind of really opens up a whole new world of applications yeah. for potentially looking at, um, yeah, increasing this vasculature in 3D printed organs. And, and it's finally, uh, you know, two two different kingdoms together. We've yeah. got animal and plant yeah, yeah, yeah. together. Oh, Nothing about you, great. Chris KP, but there's a Popeye joke in here somewhere. Yes, I haven't, there is. haven't quite yes. got it I didn't muscle that and spinach. Yeah. It's muscle <laughs> and spinach. Yeah. It's, it's in there. I just can't it's, quite... It's almost meta Popeye. Not, yeah, it's not quite coming out, but there's something in there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's fascinating. That's I mean, awesome. it, But spinach mustn't be the only plant that they could use, potentially, if it doesn't work out. Yes, well, exactly. So that's sort of the in the future work section um, of the research. They were talking about maybe using wood and for that, potentially, like, bone growth, because that's got 
got, you mm. know, strength capacities yes, and yes. the geometric properties. So it's really like looking at all different sort of types of plants and then what benefits do we need for heart tissue versus lung tissue oh, versus God. bone. Mm. Versus tree people. Muscle. Tree people. The, yeah. the ants will be a thing. Because you know, <laughs> yeah. Chris KP, I mean, he'd probably be more your maiden hair fern kind of, <laughs> kind of guy. Well, I think. Attractive but useless. What are you saying? <laughs> that's fine. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating stuff. Nice. Yeah, yeah, wow. All right. Um, now, I, uh, asteroids. Mm. Love a good asteroid. <laughs> as long as it's not near me. As long as it's good. Yeah, you know, as long as it's good. But um, there's an asteroid uh, with the catchy name of uh, 2015 BZ509. I'm just going to call it BZ for short. But um, this is an asteroid that hangs around in Jupiter's orbit. Oh. But unlike all the other asteroids in Jupiter's orbit, it goes the wrong way. Yeah. Now, this is, so it's got a, what's called a retrograde orbit. It goes, it goes, goes in the opposite direction to Jupiter around the sun. Now, you, you may recall, um, from your childhood sort of sciencey books that all the planets go around the sun in the same direction. And this is because they all basically came from the same protoplanetary disk. Mm. And so they're all heading around this in the same direction, rotating around the center at the same, in the same sort of direction to start with. And they just kept going in that direction, which makes sense. There's a few asteroids around, though, that don't, and some of them, have, you know, they're a result of collisions, other are a result of being captured by our solar system, maybe from elsewhere, but these ones are kind of odd, and the interesting thing about them is that they're nowhere near planets, so they're kind of a long way away, because planets have a sort of bit of a capacity to clear out their area of, of orbit. So Spring they're clean. Yeah, so they're kind of, you know, their gravitational pull and the disturbance of the planet going by tends to move these things out of the way. And there's a few that, of course, are stable, so, you know, there's quite a a large belt of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter, for example, and they're in a stable sort of region. There's a lot there. But the ones that are closer to planets, and, you know, there's some that are near Earth and travel sort of in our orbit, and there's some around the larger planets, they all tend to travel in the same direction of the planet because what would happen otherwise is each time they'd go past the planet in the other direction, they kind of get tugged the wrong way and they'd, they'd get moved out of their orbit pretty quickly. Now, BZ... 509, mm-hmm. uh, is actually kind of odd because it's very close to Jupiter's orbit. But what happens is when it goes past the first time on sort of, let's say, one side of the sun, um, it's closer to the sun than Jupiter. But when it goes the other on the other side, it's further away from the sun than Jupiter. So it has a slightly different orbit than Jupiter. What that means is you think, oh, well, going the wrong way, Jupiter's going to pull it in the wrong direction. But then when it goes around, the next time it gets pulled the other way and it all evens out. And it's actually quite stable, even though it's travelling in the opposite direction to everything else. So it is literally that chicken running down the highway with all the other cars coming, coming towards <laughs> it. Ah! Yeah. So it's um it's it's quite unusual. Now its orbit um has been doing its thing for about a million years. So that's wow. it's not a huge amount of time in sort of in, in the dynamics of this sort of scenario, but it's long enough to say this is a nice stable orbit. Um, if you think you know this Earth four point three billion years old, yeah, or yeah, yeah. De- it depends on what you believe. But you know, as a science guy. I tend to believe it's a bit longer than six thousand years. How do we know that it's been doing that for that long? That seems like an I think they to can. Know. Well, they can. They can calculate its trajectory quite accurately, so they can work out how far back um, right. it's stable. Within that do orbit we know where it so came far. from? No. So this is a you know, like many of the astronauts, we're not uh, astronauts. <laughs> asteroids. <laughs> they're very few astronauts circling around. Well, most of them, but they're like one. They come from years, Houston. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're all, it's either oil or astronauts over there. That's yeah. all they do. Um, <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty yeah, much. More or less. Uh, yeah, yeah, more or less. <laughs> so, but um, like a lot of them, we, we think they're all part of the makeup of the solar system early on. And in fact, one of the reasons why people are so interested in asteroids is because they haven't changed. So they're kind of frozen little co- time capsules of what 
the solar system was like when it first began. And so, hence, you know, the reason why going to even, well, Pluto was seen as something that had, hadn't changed. Yeah. Now, now it didn't work out that way. Yeah, Sorry, yes. asteroid lovers, but it didn't work out that way. There was a lot of dynamic, dynamic stuff going on. But still very interesting because, um, one, and one of the reasons why NASA Although I think this has been cancelled actually now. The, the, the astronaut sort of, um, diversion stuff and that they were doing, there was going to be a rendezvous with, with one of these to have a look at it in close and see what it's made of and see, you know, we can do spectroscopic yes, stuff, yeah. but you gotta remember asteroids don't give out light. Yes. They reflect light, which means it's a lot harder. Yeah. When something gives out light, like the sun, it's very easy to work out, or even other stars, what they're made because of. Because the nature of that light is, is a function of the what stuff they're made of. Yeah. yeah. But when something just reflects light, it's a lot harder to do those same studies. And we can do it, but it's, it's a lot harder, especially if they're, they're dim objects and so forth. So anyway, but I thought this one was really cool because it just goes the wrong way yeah and even um the number of asteroids in general that go the wrong way so even the ones in other places not near planets it's only um 0.01 percent of them go the wrong way so it's a very very small number of them go the wrong way and the chance of finding one that goes the wrong way and is near a planet yes is really rare so this this one is uh, super cool they should have given it a better name. Yeah. <laughs> totally needs a better you know, name. You know, Lone Star 5 or something, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, they should have given way, it a better name. But wrong yeah. way, go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrong, wrong way, go back. Exactly. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in a few minutes. We're going to be talking with our first guest from today, and uh, you're listening to 3 R. Hope your Sunday's going well so far. 3 You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R, folks. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Professor Jamie Rothjohn. He is an ARC Australian Laureate Fellow, Head of the Infection and Immunity Program, Monash Biomedical Discovery Institute, and Cardiff University Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash University. Welcome, Jamie. Did I miss anything? No, I think you captured it all. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Now you're you're doing some amazing work down there, and it's all with regards to the immune system. Just give us a bit of background. How did you get into looking at the immune system? And it's, I mean, it's fascinating, but did you just wake up one day and say the immune system's the thing, or did you kind of accidentally get there? No, I've always been a late developer. Um, <laughs> uh, I started off with a passion for science from my early school days, focused on biochemistry, and then I moved across to Australia after my um, degrees. I uh, was focused on understanding how proteins work. Mm-hmm. And then that led me to understanding how the proteins that's involved in the immune systems work. Mm. Um, and it's been a passion that's grown in me over the last 20 years or so. Do, I mean, from your perspective, do we have a clue at this point about the complexity of the immune system? It seems as though every other month at the moment there's some new groundbreaking piece of material that comes out about it that just seems to be so complicated. Well, it is a very complex system and we are learning lots of new things uh, on a daily and weekly basis and it's the sort of uh, inspiring science that i hear from others that uh, gets me up in every morning to to do the work that i do at monash university hmm. now let's 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 talk about what what you're doing down there um you're looking in particular about things how the immune system works and when when it goes wrong so give us some examples of what's going on when the immune system is not quite firing correctly okay so the immune system is there to protect ourselves from viruses and bacteria but sometimes it can inadvertently 
interact with uh, your own uh, body's tissues, mm -hmm. uh, such as autoimmunity, celiac disease, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and we're trying to understand what are those triggers uh, with, the, with the ultimate vision of uh, developing novel immunotherapeutics to treat such uh, uh, deleterious auto-reactivity. So, so how do you go after, let's, let's take something like celiac disease or something, for example, where my understanding is the, the body is essentially attacking itself. This is uh, the immune system's confused and it attacks your own cells. How do you treat something like that without switching the immune system off and then removing our, our defense system? Yes, yeah, so um, there's a genetic predisposition towards celiac disease and we're understanding the basis of that predisposition, uh, genetic uh, relatedness. And then based on that, we're looking at targeted immunotherapeutics uh, to treat that or understand the signatures that might cause the disease, sort of modern-day diagnostics. Mm. Yeah. Now, now you've, you've been um, looking at these particular types of cells that um, are affected by various drugs and so forth, which are called, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, they're MAIT or MATE cells. It's great that's coming from Australia. MATE cells. What are these cells? What part of the immune system do they function in and, and how are they affected by drugs? Okay, so... Mate cells, mucosal associated invariant T cells. There are a very abundant population of T cells in your body, up to about 10% of all T cells, and they line the gut. Mm -hmm. And up to about uh, five years ago, nobody knew what mate cells could recognize. And so, in collaboration with Jim McCluskey at the University of Melbourne, we provided the first insight to what mate cells can recognize. And these are not bits of virus, but they're metabolites of vitamin B. Okay. Um, and then we are asked the next question is, well, what else can mate cells respond to in terms of how they function or when they go wrong? And the hypothesis that we had, which, which was curiosity-driven science, was that maybe mate cells can also inadvertently respond to some commonly prescribed drugs. And that was the, the basis of the recent paper that was published in Nature Immunology this year. Hmm. And when you say commonly prescribed drugs, I mean, are we talking about things like paracetamol and so forth, or, or what, what sort of drugs are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about Voltaren, right? Uh, diclofenic, uh, but we also showed um, that um, uh, mate cells can also respond to salicyclates, um, which is like the active ingredient of um, uh, other commonly prescribed drugs, which begged the question about maybe uh, individuals who suffer from salicyclate intolerance, maybe their mate cells um, are perturbed. Hmm. There's, there's known to be a lot of uh, adverse uh, immune reactions between drugs and, and the immune system, and I guess our work was a logical extension um, of that with this newly identified class of T-cells. Hmm. So when, when you say that these drugs can produce, uh, as a side effect, an impact on the immune system, is it an overaction or an underaction, or is it a combination of both? It depends on the nature of the ligand that it's responding to. So we described uh, some of the ligands that can activate the mate cells mm -hmm. and also some that uh, could inhibit. Um, this paper that we published was an early stage uh, publication and the next step on the journey is then to examine this in a more of a clinical context. Do these, do these kinds of risks, do they get described you know, in the fine print on the, on the packet? Do they say may cause immunity condition or something if they want that at all? Uh, not for this um, early stage basic right. research, mm. but for other um, uh, drug hypersensitivities such as abacavir, uh, which is an sure. antiretroviral. Yep. If you're B5701 positive, then you know, doctors don't prescribe that drug to you. And we provided a basis for that in our 2012 Nature okay. paper. Now, now, a couple of the drugs you mentioned there are anti-inflammatories and those sorts of things. 
With some of the conditions we spoke about before, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and so forth, I can imagine these people are using these drugs quite commonly. Is is that a really big problem given this issue with these cells? It seems to me the people who are most at risk of potentially using the drugs are the most problematic for them, or am I making the wrong connection? Well, no, so that's uh, essentially an important point, is that uh, today's society is commonly uh, taking these drugs without any consideration for the impact on the immune system. Uh, either direct or indirect and we've shown that it can directly modulate the function in the immune system which could potentially have profound effects if you're uh, constantly taking such medications. Mm. Now a lot, a lot of the work you're doing is in collaboration with um, I suspect some of the physicists and so forth down at the synchrotron. What do what you which are, if you would mind, it's just it's across the fence, right? I mean, <laughs> it's it's pretty close. <laughs> um, what what are you doing there with the synchrotron? Is this examining the the detailed structure of these chemicals? Or uh, yes, yeah, so the molecules that we look at, the proteins, they're very small, and to be able to see those proteins, you need to have a very powerful microscope, which is the synchrotron. Mm. So we look at the precise atomic details of these protein structures that are found on immune cells, and we collaborate closely with the physicists there but also with the team up at La Trobe and Melbourne University because, as, as you might know, we're part of a ARC Centre of Excellence. Hmm. And in terms of the, the sort of next stages for the research, will this lead to potentially different types of drugs for people with these immune conditions or do you think it's just going to say these drugs can't be used? I mean, is there possibilities that there are drugs that won't have this effect on these mate cells? I don't think we'll say these drugs can't be used because I got, might get sued. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the next stage for us is to uh, tailor some of these uh, molecules that can either activate or inhibit mate cells to make very potent activators or very potent inhibitors so that when we do understand the functioning of mate cells uh, more, which is a very important area of research for my colleagues and I, we'll be able to then turn them on or off um, at our will uh, for any particular medication, that's, any particular uh, situation that, that arises. So if you turn the mate cells off, does the rest of the immune system still function? Or what, I mean, well, what does that do? Well, that's what we're, we're particularly interested in trying to understand is can we t target these particular mate cells to either activate them or inhibit them? And in collaboration with chemists up in Queensland, that is what we're precisely trying to do. Mm. I know I, I saw um, some, some stuff recently about with lupus and other conditions where it wasn't you know, the standard way to treat these things is to with steroidal medications and so forth, which, as far as I can, that turns the whole immune system basically off, doesn't it? So yes, that's the right. Worst so, thing you can do. Yeah, so we're looking, you know, this the concept of personalised medicine, mm. uh, where you know the genetic makeup of of the of the individual, uh, and that's um, one area that we're trying to look at, as opposed to global immunosuppressants, for example. Mm. Jamie, it's really interesting work, and I think uh, the further we we go with this stuff, the more we'll find that we're you know, able to tailor that response to parts of the immune system and not the parts that we need, um, because obviously, if you're you're already you know unwell as a result of one of those other autoimmune diseases, the last thing you want is to have your immune system switched off entirely. So, um, in terms of um, the CRC, is this the main focus? What other things do, does the CRC um, work uh, on? Well, the ARC is a, a large uh, a collaboration between scientists from Queensland, Melbourne. Uh, and Monash and Latrobe, where we integrate the work of physicists, chemists and uh, biologists to understand the complexity of the immune system, where it's basic research being brought together in, in, in a number of different uh, ways to provide uh, deep insights. Mm. 
Professor Jamie Rosten, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us at Triple R, and good luck with this. It's um, it's important work that I know affects a lot of people. Thanks for the opportunity. Professor Jamie Rosten from Monash University, part of the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. We're going to take a short break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with our second guest. We're going to be talking about immunisation. So if you haven't been immunised, go and do it quickly. You've got about three minutes. Back in a moment. Three. Triple Now you are listening to Triple R. We have our second guest in the studio, Dr. Margie Tan- Danchen is from, she's a paediatrician, she's in the Department of General Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital. She's also a senior research fellow at the Vaccine and Immunisation and Rotavirus Research Group in the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and is a senior fellow in the Department of Paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Margie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, I understand you are, you are effectively the living embodiment of the children's campus. Like, you've got all three bits. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm fortunate enough to go across the, the clinical side, the, the children's hospital as an inpatient ped, but I also have worked within the Murdoch Children's Research Institute for about 10 years now, um, mm. and the same with um, the University of Melbourne as well. Have you ever seen this crazy guy on a Friday out the back of the Children's Hospital practising karate with one of the children's staff rooms? <laughs> Absolutely. There's all sorts of stuff like that going <laughs> yeah, on on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> Is that you? Is that right? That's me. Yeah. Um, oh. no, we're, we're, now you've got a name to give to security. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Absolutely. right. You know, get him off the lawn. Um, now, so you're, you're a clinician there. So what sort of um, patients are you seeing? Is it general medicine or is it um, a speciality? What are you doing? I'm a general paediatrician, so mm-hmm. I work in the Department of General Peds um, on the wards, so yep. kids that are admitted to the ward with a, a broad range of, um, of clinical problems. At the moment now with the hospital, really the complexity has increased quite a lot. So the kids admitted to the ward often have a number of medical issues. So it's mm. a lot more challenging than when I actually started training at the children's in... 1998 I think it was so I've been there a very long time so we get complicated kids on the wards but also more simple problems infections asthma urinary tract infections that sort of thing so um, but also uh, I work in the outpatient department there and particularly I work in the immunization service and we have a weekly what's called specialist immunization clinic where we see kids with a range of issues mostly adverse events but also parents who are vaccine hesitant and have specific Mm. concerns Vaccine. And of course, this is the reason we've, we've got you in here to, right. to talk specifically about this. Um, just, just before we get on to that, though, I just wanted to ask you, because the Children's Hospital over the last few years, and just recently it's come online, yeah. have introduced an electronic medical record system. So, you know, if, if you go to many of the hospitals in Melbourne, someone will write down on paper what's going on, and then if you're really lucky, they'll scan it and they'll store it somewhere, you know, sc- store a picture of that page somewhere, which is which is not electronically viable. That's it's right. But you have this new system. Has that changed the way you're oh, doing things? Absolutely. It was introduced April last year yep. at the hospital and it was an excruciating process, to mm. be honest, to change over from paper to a purely electronic medical mm. record. It's actually incredibly frustrating now. Just sometimes all I want is just a piece of paper. <laughs> right. um, and to learn the system has been quite taxing. And for me, what it's done actually in the outpatient department is it's sort of inhibited the interaction with the parent a little bit because okay. we spend so much time typing and trying to get through different screens whereas I used to find I could write very quickly and mm. keep my notes and still keep that interaction with the family. So I actually have to consciously stop typing and turn to the family and play with the child, examine the 
child and remember to not just constantly be typing. Mm. So I have actually found it quite challenging. So there's some challenges. Presumably, though, at some stage, you know, especially when, I mean, one of the things that happens, I suppose, at the children's is when the children get to a certain age, they kind of fall off this cliff of care where they then go out into the general hospital system. And their records at the moment, it's hard to transition records from one location to another in their healthcare system, isn't it? So that, yeah. that, that will have to change. I must say they did an incredibly good job at scanning all of the records. So mm. before April last year, we have all yeah. of the written records scanned. So we're able to access those records very quickly. Yep. Um, so I don't think we've lost anything there. But as you say, that transition of care from um, late teens into adult care, which happens around that 17, 18-year-old yep. mark, is very difficult. Mm. Um, and I think that does pose challenges again with transfer of records and and so on mm. maybe the electronic medical medical record will actually make that easier i yeah. don't know yeah i mean it'd be great if you could if you if you're much like with your banking your records traveled with you that's right you know, at the moment every time you go to a new clinician even as an adult mm. it's like hello yeah. <laughs> but the, the email the yeah. has actually um, introduced another level of complexity where parents can actually access their child's results from right. home yeah right. so in fact we order tests and parents can log in through the parent portal and look at the results mm-hmm. and sometimes you know they want to discuss that result or it's slightly abnormal but not abnormal in the sense that mm. we would be concerned about so there's a sort of a, a new level of accountability for the doctors and sharing of information between families, which I think is really great, and I think we needed to move in that direction, but again, poses another set of yeah. challenges for us as clinicians. Yeah, and probably some training that needs to um, happen and, and transition. It's really, you yeah. know, working on that partnership, I think, yeah. between doctors yeah. and parents, which is, is actually a great thing. Yeah, so then this, this is where, th- it's this partnership with parents that you work in probably That's most right. prominently um, around vaccinations. So give us an idea of what, what your day is like like in that regard when you have some parents who are coming in with legitimate concerns i mean to, uh, and you know we we hear a lot i think in in the media about you know how can they not vaccinate but to be fair um the amount of information available on why you shouldn't vaccinate i think on the web probably exceeds the amount of information on why why you should you know like it's it's kind of almost the wrong way around that's right and so i mean what, what's your day like tell us about what happens there when these parents come in and you talk to them about vaccinations well it's interesting you say what's my day like i sort of live eat and breathe this area now mm. i started off my research life in vaccine clinical trials and vaccine safety but in the last three or four years i've built a whole vaccine social science research program at the murdoch children's research institute so i've been working heavily in this area i have a number of big research projects and students and PhD students um, working with me. So that's sort of one side. And then in in, t- in a day-to-day clinical sense, I work in a weekly uh, immunisation mm. clinic at the hospital, as I mentioned before, and about a quarter of our families there are purely vaccine-hesitant, wanting to come and talk about their concerns. And since the introduction of the new immunisation policies, the mm-hmm. no jab, no pay, yeah. no jab, no play in Victoria... We've had a lot more parents coming to the clinic specifically wanting to talk about their concerns and request a medical exemption. Mm. which has added a new level of challenge. And sometimes these conversations are very difficult and heartfelt for these families, um, and it is very challenging for us to be clear and to start to address their concerns. So, so when they come in with concerns, I mean, what, what does that present as? What, you know, 
What sort of concerns are they? Yeah, what sort of things are they asking? What are they worried about? I would say the most common concern that parents <laughs> express to us is that children get too many vaccines in the first two years of life, and right. they're concerned about the vaccines overwhelming the immune system. And I think that's linked to this common misconception that because we are vaccinating against so many more diseases, say when they were kids, that therefore we must be giving more antigens or more immunological components, when in fact we're giving a lot less because mm-hmm. the, the 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 way the science behind vaccines and the way they're made we're actually giving a fraction of the immunological components and so explaining to parents that although we're vaccinating against more diseases in fact it's less of a challenge to the child's immune system Okay. It's really important. The second most common concern would be vaccine ingredients. Are vaccine ingredients toxic? Yep. You know, what's in there? There's this misconception that there's mercury in the vaccine um, because of that link between thiamersal and autism, uh, which is another whole topic. But there, we have had no mercury in any um, childhood Australian vaccine since 2000. Right. So there's just a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding on, on parents' behalf. And then I'd say probably the third concern is still around MMR and autism. Mm. And is there, there must be a, a group that come in though that just want the medical exemption. Like, like there are. I, I don't agree with vaccinations. I don't care about Absolutely. the science. I want the medical exemption and you're the person to give it to me. Well, I think the important thing to understand about vaccine hesitancy is it is a spectrum. Mm. And we know that you have accepting parents and then that the concerns ramp up and you go from parents with minor concerns and major concerns who are still fully vaccinating to then uh, parents who are selectively vaccinating or what we call cherry-picking vaccines to the refusers. And we have all of that spectrum present to clinic and it's very difficult with those selectively vaccinating or completely refusing parents to... Um, address their concerns in a way that they find satisfying because often, you know, there's a cognitive dissonance and the mm. way they are interpreting the science is very different to the way we perceive the science. So I'm very clear in my approach and it sort of underpins my whole vaccine research program is that we encourage parents to ask concerns, we engender trust. It's very important that relationship with the parent and how that conversation goes yep. is almost more important than what you're saying. Absolutely, yeah. It, so- it sounds like um, when parents are coming in with, with their concerns that via whatever uh, mechanism, they're not coming in ignorant. They might have misleading information or unbalanced information, but it's not from nothing. At what point of the process are you, are you the last place they go or are you early in the piece when they're looking? Essentially, you're another point of information for Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Where do you fit? I would say, again, it, it depends on the degree of the vaccine hesitancy spectrum that they sit. The more highly hesitant parents or those selective parents or even the refusers are heavily researched parents. Right. In fact, many of them are extremely knowledgeable. They walk into the clinical yeah. room holding an arm full of information. So these are parents that are genuinely concerned. They 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 are, they want the best for their child. It's not mm. that they um, don't want to protect their child, but they're seriously concerned. They've done a lot of research. Mm. So I'm certainly not the first port of call. The internet has almost certainly been the first port of call. And with those refusing parents, we know that they are more likely to engage with alternative healthcare practitioners and to access the internet than their GP. Right. So they're coming in with uh, often, not always, but an alternative belief system and structure. And so it's about finding that common ground where you can intersect and try and help to understand where they're coming from. Are you filling in a gap or is it antagonistic? 
I have worked very hard at not making these or allowing these conversations to become antagonistic mm. and it's taken me a long time and I still find it challenging but mm. they don't need to be antagonistic. Sure. I think by allowing the parent to really express what their concern is and to not judge them straight off the bat for that really diffuses that antagonism. We both want the, the best outcome for their kid and so in fact... I think that it is completely possible to avoid antagonism. When, Margie, when you've completely fixed up the vaccination thing, can you do a bit of work in climate change? Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I find this really interesting because yeah. the level of antagonism, yeah. the level of abuse and, and arrogance, to mm. be frank. I mean, I'm a scientist. I'm 100% climate change. Yes, this, I believe my colleagues. I'm not a climate scientist, but, you know, they believe me on gravity. I believe them on 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 climate science absolutely but the the arrogance and the antagonism that occurs almost this identity politics all the time and so forth Mm. i I just find it it is the most it's self-defeating it is absolutely well a lot of these parents feel really persecuted in their own Mm. communities they often ostracized from mothers groups Mm. um if they're not immunizing their children and they come in really (laughs) quite shaken and you know but for them to actually make the effort to get a referral to the children's hospital find parking drag their kid in Mm. and say you know what i don't vaccinate and and this is why i mean i have a huge amount of respect for them to actually come in the door so you know i feel like i've done my job well if they leave that consultation and they say thank you for not judging me yeah and, um, I, th- and I have to say you know as a as a parent myself anyone who comes to me and says in any way you're a bad parent <laughs> i'll have two words for you and the first one starts with f yeah <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't matter whether i'm right or wrong i mean that that inference is just it's not going to get you anywhere in no. the discussion and I think, you know, for parent, for us to give that message to parents that we know they want the best for their child, mm. um, and to try and, you know, um, address them in a scientific sense. But the problem is when there's a lot of science out there about miscorrection. Mm. And in fact, you know, um, it's very difficult to do. And if you're going to tackle a myth head on, for example, MMR and autism, um, it needs to be done in such a way where you replace it with a new fact that they can put into that, that void or that knowledge gap mm. um, in a very clear, easy way. But I only believe that's possible if you have the basis of trust in that relationship. Yeah. Margie, can you hang around for a few minutes? We're going to take a break for some music and um, we'll be back. I've still got a few questions for you, so we're going to make uh, you stick absolutely. around. You're listening to 3 Triple R, folks. We'll be back in just a moment. 3 Triple In the studio with us, continuing, is Dr. Margie Danchin. She is from the Children's Hospital and the entire Children's Campus. She's got Melbourne Uni in there. She's got the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in there and the actual hospital itself. Now, Margie, one of the things I think I'd I'd like to do before we go on is get you to explain to us and to everyone out there how a vaccine works, because this is one of the things that often gets confused in, in a lot of people's minds. It does, and in fact, many people, many parents think that the vaccine is, you know, if you're talking about an injectable vaccine, that it goes straight into the bloodstream. And, you know, so most um, vaccines are intramuscular or or going into the Mm. muscle or subcutaneous vaccines. And they sit in the muscle, the, the, and there are all the components I mentioned earlier about the vaccine ingredients, particularly the vaccine antigen and the adjuvant. And then you've got the other ingredients like the stabilizers and, um, the preservatives and sugars and so on. And that sits in the muscle and then, um, it, it, the antigen is able to, um, travel to the bloodstream. And then that's when the, it meets the immune cells and you get the, um, immune response initiated, which is the creation of antibodies. 
And it's really important that parents understand that it's th- those antibodies that are the first line of defence. Mm-hmm. So particularly for a disease like meningococcal disease that most parents would be familiar with, which has a very rapid onset and is very overwhelming, that's when kids really rely on having those antibodies already in the bloodstream, ready mm. to go as that first line of defence, because they don't have time to make their own antibodies when a child from the start of infection can be dead 12 hours later. Right. Now, that's not the same for all vaccine-preventable diseases, but it's important that parents understand that it's the creation of those antibodies in the bloodstream that are circulating around and the memory cells that can ramp up the immune response in the when, when challenged by the disease. Yeah. And then the other um, vaccine vaccine of course are oral vaccines and the where so like rotavirus vaccine which is given to infants at two four and six months that vaccine um uh, has a mucosal immune response and and is um taken orally but Mm. most of them are into the muscle now i I read some time ago that there were certain certain viruses and so forth that actually affected your ability to remember all this stuff so i think there was i can't remember which one it was but there was some virus that children were getting in africa and it kind of damaged your your immune system's ability to do some of this stuff so if you didn't get the vaccination for it the fact that you'd caught other things earlier didn't matter anymore it kind of wiped them out it might have been malaria something was it was something serious um so maybe not a virus but and so all of these things are linked in aren't they i mean we're training our immune system as a whole to do a job so when when i think about that and you you said before some parents are concerned about the the amount yes the immunological components <clears throat> to, to me it kind of seems as though it should be the other way around like the the more things you test your immune system with the better trained it gets and the more adaptive it gets is, is that not the case or? no it is the case and <clears throat> i think parents need to understand the huge capacity of the human immune system so mm. we give at most um three vaccines at two four and six months and yep. one vaccine has six antigens against six separate diseases and then there's the so that's the infanrix hexa vaccine which has whooping cough in it then there's the pneumococcal vaccine and the rotavirus vaccine so that's a decent parents would think you know immunological challenge to their child but in fact the human immune system could actually have about ten thousand vaccines at once believe it or not and i I try not to use that figure with parents because it's too big it's too overwhelming but even saying a hundred vaccines or or, 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 you know, 10,000. You know, I just think people don't understand the capacity of the human immune system. And it is about those immunological challenges early mm. um, that are really important to, to build up that immunity. And all of this is coming out now with regards to things like introduction of eggs and other, mm. and other dietary components that, you know, we've seen this massive growth, especially in Australia, of... Um, people having, you know, kids having trouble, anaphylaxis with certain foods. That's right. Uh, but but now I know that the work of Katie Allen down there at your facility yep. is sort of dragged drag this stuff forward. So, you know, give your kids egg early and not later. That's right. And in fact, there's another really important trial that the Murdoch are running led by Professor Nigel Curtis, which is looking at giving the, BC, giving the BCG vaccine, the li- a live vaccine at birth for the prevention of food allergy. Oh, wow. So there are non-specific wow. defects of vaccines as well. Live vaccines given very early on in life can have other effects on health. Mm. Um, and that's a really exciting trial. Katie Allen's involved in that trial yeah. as well. So really interesting work. Now, now, you personally in your own life have, have an interesting story to tell here in that your sister is effectively not a supporter of vaccines that's right how i mean this this must be 
very essentially in your own family you're, you have someone who is similar to some of the people who are coming through the door in your clinic how's that affected yeah i think things? i have a lot to thank my sister for actually she is younger than me and she has chosen not to immunize her daughter and we had the same education and upbringing mm-hmm. and i come through one scientific door and she comes through another door in the way that she interprets science and in many ways i think it was having conversations with her about vaccines that triggered my interest in this area of vaccine hesitancy and vaccine social science and um yes so my niece who's now eight is still completely unvaccinated and my sister lives in that sort of northern (coughs) rivers region around the byron bay mullumbimby area Mm -hmm. which i'm I'm sure most of your listeners would be aware has the lowest vaccination rates Mm. in australia Mm. um and um you know she's been able to communicate with me that since the new policies have come into place particularly you know the the no jab no pay no jab no play um that there are um parents who are collecting and having um kindergartens for completely unvaccinated children Mm. and so these are some of the concerns we have and why i think we need better evidence-based strategies to address parents concerns rather than anti-vaxxer shaming and yeah yeah absolutely and and your discussions with your sister i cannot imagine they started off with oh that's okay (laughs) um I mean, they must have been pretty heated early they on, were. and this has and led you to this point. Absolutely, and I, I don't think I handled them very well yeah. early yeah. on. And uh, so she's taught me a lot. She's taught me a lot about understanding and taking the time to listen and really um, learning to come through another door mm-hmm. um, with these con- conversations because, as I said earlier, that is about building trust. And until you give the person the impression that you are actually um, understanding their world point of view, mm-hmm. um, you can't actually start to break down... Um, what their concerns are. Now let's talk briefly about the risk because you know any any medical intervention any medical intervention is not zero risk. Yeah. There's no, also absolutely. there's also you know and if if you gave me the choice between the risk of a vaccine or polio on the street, I know which one I'm choosing. That's but right. but parents are coming in. There is a risk. They've read about this risk. It seems a lot more prevalent on the internet than mm. it is walking down the street. That's right. I, I mean, what are the risks with regards to well, vaccinations? I think what you're really alluding to here is that many vaccine preventable diseases now, because we've had such a robust, robust immunisation mm. program, actually quite rare or uncommon. Yep. We don't. So see parents them. don't see them yep. as much anymore. Yes, we've had intermittent. Um, uh, epidemics of whooping cough mm. um, we're seeing you know there's no natural measles in australia we it's brought in by return travelers but unless we have that herd immunity threshold around 95 percent or over with relation to measles it can spread very quickly mm. in the community because the um, secondary attack rate for measles is one index case to about 18 to 19 secondary cases so i think it's important to, to understand that um but uh, your question was more around well well just the the idea that there are risks with these vaccines. Yes. So that, you know, if if you said that, you, you wouldn't be able to honestly say to all these parents, oh, what the actual there's risks are. Mm. there's no chance whatsoever of this causing a problem with your child. I mean, so there is some risk. I mean, how do you yes. contextualise that for you? Yeah. Me? So that's what I was going to say. Is I'm very clear, and I think um, as vaccine advocates, we need to make you know help parents to understand that no vaccine is 100% safe, mm. and no vaccine is 100% effective. Yep. And you can almost see parents sigh with relief mm. when you say that. It's about you know being accountable and being mm. honest. And I think again that improves that mm. trust in the relationship because they're okay all right good so if you're thinking about um varicella for example one dose of the chickenpox vaccine is about 85 percent effective 
Right. So there's a 15% breakthrough rate. But what parents don't understand is if that child does develop chickenpox um, and they've had one dose of vaccine, it'll be a milder form of the illness. Yeah. So instead of 500 pox or spots and being sick for two weeks and the possibility of severe complications, that child may have 20 to 30 spots and be sick for two to three days. Yeah, yeah. So I think talking about the effectiveness of the vaccine is important. And then your specific question was more about side effects or adverse mm. events. And again, we need to be very clear with parents that common adverse events are really common, uh, such as, you know, fever, um, irritability, um, high-pitched crying, um, injection site reactions. You know, it depends on the vaccine, but we're talking about a quarter maybe of, mm. of infants. Mm. And so if parents are armed with that knowledge, they understand what to expect. I think mm. it makes a huge yeah. difference. Yeah. The, the, the rarer adverse events, we do talk with about parents such as um, the possibility for what's called a pale floppy episode or hypotensive hyporesponsive episodes, abbreviated as HHE. These happen in about one to 20 to 30,000 infants, um, usually after the first or second dose of that six-component vaccine I mentioned, the yep. Infanrix hexa vaccine. We think it's due to the pertussis component predominantly. Rare reactions like that are the sort of children we see in our clinic, our weekly yep. clinic, and we go through it. And parents are just so relieved when they hear what it is. It's got a name. Mm. This is, you know, there are no yep. long-term consequences. Yeah, so yeah. again, it's about education. Yeah, look, Margie, you're absolutely my go-to now on this vaccine stuff. <laughs> you know, we, yep. We've been looking to have someone on, on for a while to talk about this, and I think the way you approach people in the clinic is spectacular. And hopefully, uh, more and more clinicians will take on this and, and climate. Climatologists, if you're out there, you should be doing it the same way because you, you'll get a lot further if you don't have an adversarial approach. So thanks so much for chatting to us today. And, and folks, um, don't all try and book her in at once. I'm sure she's <laughs> busy enough. Oh, look, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be able to talk about this. I'm very yeah. passionate about it. No, thanks so much. Dr. Margie Danchen is down at the Children's, the Royal Children's Hospital and part of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne's Department of Pediatrics. We're out of time. We're going to have to hand over. Lauren, thanks so much for coming in and helping us out today. Great to be back. Putting up with Chris KP. Chris KP, thanks for coming in. Absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> Lou's been doing our Twitter feed. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. I'm Dr Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.